might as well go home now. And so, that'll get you stirred up. If you guys have your Bibles while they're getting to their seats, go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians for us. Inquire as always. You guys rocked the house this morning. Thank you. I was about, I'll regret this at lunch, but I was about this close to asking John or asking uh, Ron to crank it up a little bit and we sing it again as a group because that was good. And uh, maybe, uh, maybe this, maybe for the invitation, would you mind leading us in that song? We'll switch it up. Let's sing that one together as a group and that'll be real good. Uh, I picked out, I had already given Betsy a different song for the invitation, but uh, boy, that one beats the brakes off any song I gave her already. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll turn it up some and we'll sing that song again. Let's do that. Let me, uh, let me go to the Lord in prayer for us. Father God, thank you that you, you are everything that that song proclaimed of you. Living, you loved us. Dying, you saved us. And you carried our sin far away. God, thank you that when you died, you didn't stay dead. But you said, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. And I pick it up again when I'm ready. And God, thank you that on the third day, you rose from the dead. And in that, you beat death. You've taken away the sting of death. And we have eternal life in your name. God, I thank you for this book of Ephesians that we're about to study. Lord, I thank you for all of the truths that are in it. Lord, I thank you for the Apostle Paul and that despite his imprisonment, he didn't get down in the dumps, but he took an opportunity to write a letter that we still benefit from today. God, I pray that you would use me, your unworthy servant, to feed your sheep this morning so that we can grow closer to you as a family. And so, God, I pray this next 30 minutes would be yours and yours alone. And, God, I pray that we would leave here forever changed to be more like you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you stay in Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to go. But I want to do a, a, a bit of a review. Remember, we talked about the book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was uh, in prison. He had been in prison because his gospel ministry was so successful. Now... Uh, I honest to God think that we're in a day where pastors will be imprisoned in a matter of years if they have successful gospel ministries. I think that if in, in my particular vocation, if we stand and as a church, if we stand for the things that God stands for and we stand against the things that God is against, namely all sin, that it is only a matter of time before the government tells us we can't do that. And you may think it's farther off than it is, but some of you uh, in the old guard here at the church, you know how far this country has gone downhill, and you know that we are just just days, months, maybe years away from the things that I say in the pulpit being unlawful. We're already in a place where in the state of South Carolina, if I was a pastor in South Carolina and someone came into my office that uh, had a particular sin problem, I won't get on the soapbox. And I told them that that sin was a result of all of the other bad things happening in their life. I would go to jail. 
And so we are in a tough spot. So don't think that we're very far away from this successful churches being persecuted. It's close. It's at our doorstep. But Paul was under persecution. He gets sent into house arrest and he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, I told you that the earliest manuscripts of this book, they don't have to the church in Ephesus. So it could have been that Paul writes this letter as a circular letter to go to all churches so they know how to do church. So they know how to, uh, how to act, how to behave, how to go about doing things. And so this is a great, small, compact letter that's about to step on our toes this week. But the first three chapters, Paul takes and he gives you theology. He gives you how great God is. He tells you all sorts of other great things about God. And now we're in chapter 4 and he's about to say, as a result of those things, this is how you need to act. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, we've picked up that uh, God chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. That's a blessing that you have. He chose you to have redemption. He he also gave you forgiveness of sins. So you've been bought. Your sins have been forgiven. And then he makes known to us the mystery of his will. And so you're not just forgiven of your sin. You're not just redeemed. You are adopted into God's family. And dad, God, has pulled you aside and he's told you what his will is. So you're not just a member of God's house, but you're in the know. You know what's going on, and you play an active part in it. Then he says, he prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know the hope to which God has called you. He wants you to know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and he wants you to know the incredibly great power that we have as us who believe. That's all Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 2, he explained to you, Paul did, that you, before you got saved, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions transgressions and sins, but God was rich in mercy. So before you got saved, and if you're not saved, your life is being lived in hostility towards God, even if it doesn't seem that way. Because a selfish life is hostile towards God. So you're dead in your transgressions and sins. And you, you are an object of wrath, but while you were dead, God, being rich in mercy with the great love he has for us, he comes and he awakens you spiritually. And he wakes you up unto salvation. Then he, ta- he spends a lot of time talking about because of this, now there's no longer Jew and Gentile. And he says that the cross... The cross that Christ died on is an object of peace. It, it, the cross uh, does away with the law because Christ has now been crucified. He fulfilled the law and now there is no more law and Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. That was a mystery before. Now we are to... He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he goes on to say in verse 20 of chapter 3, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. And so now we know that Paul is praying for us. He's praying for the church that God would do incomparably great things through you, the church. And so God has all of the power in the world 
and he's given it to us, the church, and he expects great things from us. It would be like you opening your shop to your children and asking them to build something. Your whole woodworking shop, all of your tools, and then they come back with something made of toothpicks. You would say, come on, you had my circular saw, you had my table saw, you had my nail gun, you had all of these things at your disposal, and you built something out of toothpicks using glue? I gave you everything I had, and that's what you did? Sometimes that's us as a church. God's given us all of his power, all of his might. He expects us to do great things, and then we give him a toothpick house and a shoddy one sometimes at that. So we have the power of God inside of us to do great things. Now he's going to say in Ephesians chapter 4, because of all of that, I skipped another great part also. Remember that he said uh, there's something in particular that Paul prayed for. This is in chapter, you don't have to turn there. But this is chapter 1, verse 18. Paul said, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which has called you. And so you have a marvelous hope that you've been called to. You have all of these great things from Christ. Sometimes evangelists come by, these traveling evangelists, revival speakers, and they'll, they'll in case you haven't noticed, uh, I'm not a real hellfire and damnation preacher. And so I'll probably never light a book of matches, blow the smoke your way and say, ah, smell the smoke. That's what hell's going to be like, that sort of thing. But sometimes these, these preachers will come by. They do it. I'm telling you, they do it. They Sometimes they stage natural disasters outside the back door just to draw a response from people. But listen, sometimes <clears throat> pastors get on this kick and they'll try to scare you into sharing your faith with lost people. They'll say, if you could go to hell for 10 minutes and see how bad it was, you'd tell your friends about Christ. If you could just experience hell for a moment of time or for a second, you would change the way that you live and you would tell others about Christ so they didn't have to experience all of those bad things. Is that true? Probably. But God is not interested in scaring you to do anything and scaring you into heaven. Instead, he says, I love you and I want you to know the incomparably great hope that you have in Christ. So he doesn't scare you into making you do things. He says, no, instead, let me tell you how much I love you so that you willingly share the gospel with your friends. And you don't do it out of a, out of a, a burdensome need. I'm trying to save people from this bad thing. Instead, you have a hope and a future that you want other people to know about. Much like if you had the cure for cancer and other people had cancer, you would readily go to them so they could be saved from that. It wouldn't be something you did out of a, a fear or obligation. It would be something you would, you would readily do and be excited to do. Such is following Christ. You should do it out of the hope that you have in him, not out of fear of all of these other things. You following me? Remember the whole, I love you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you want me to do out of an overflow of love for you as opposed to you're going to be mad at me if I don't. So now we're in Ephesians and we're in chapter 4. And Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so Paul says in, in chapters one through three, I called you to all of these great things. God gave you all of these things. Now Paul says, live like it. You have all of these great things at your expense. You have, God has done all of these grand things for you. Now act like it. 
You take a guy, I used to live in Suffolk, Virginia. That's where I grew up. And because I was just across the state line by about five or ten minutes, uh, that, that then made me a Virginia Tech fan uh, when I was growing up. I'm not going to tell you who I pull for now because you guys will be all a basket case the rest of the service. Anyways, used to be a Virginia Tech fan. Michael Vick was coming through Virginia Tech at the time. And all of us in Virginia, obviously, were huge Michael Vick fans because he was rocking and rolling, doing all of these great things. Michael Vick then graduates from Virginia Tech. He goes on to play for the Atlanta Falcons. And he's doing all of these great things. But then he gets into dogfighting. And he gets sent to jail. His coach should have grabbed him by the collar and said, Michael, you're an NFL football player. You have endless talent. You have more talent than I do as your coach. You need to live like it. Stop the dog fighting because you're better than that now. You're, you're, you're gone from it. You have all of this. You have endless things at your disposal and you're still dog fighting. Why? He's a, a true rags-to-riches story, but he couldn't break away from all of the things that he grew up in as a child. You, as a child of God, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So you, brother and sister in Christ, stop. Stop with all of the worldliness. Live according to the way that you've been called. You're not that way anymore. You were dead in in sin, you were a a child of of the evil one. Now you've been set free from all of that. All of that garbage is gone. Now you've been adopted into God's family and you're a child of the king. Act like it. If you got adopted into uh, Queen Elizabeth's family, she would make you act like a true Brit. She would say, listen, you're, you're royalty now. Act like it. Stop with the handshakes. We don't do that here. That's what she would say. You are a child of the king. Act like it, he says. And he's going to give you some ways to do it. Then he says, be completely humble. This is in verse 2. This is how you begin to act like a child of the king. And he's, he's going to be talking about the church here first. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So we as a church... When somebody says, you're a child of the king, act like it. Within the body of Christ, this is how you do it. Be humble. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. You should have a sense of humility. Remember, all of us, me, you, everybody, we were dead. And Christ is the one who came in and saved us. And there's no room for pride. There's only room for humility. Because we were all in the same boat, dead. Then he says, don't just be humble, be patient. Or excuse me, be gentle and be patient. So you shouldn't be like a bull in a china shop. You should be gentle with people. Because you don't just launch into maturity in Christ. It's something that takes a while. And so you, maybe you've been a believer in Christ longer. You need to be gentle with those other people who are in church. And so when we talk with one another, when we do these things called business meetings, when we do all of these other things, you are to be gentle with one another. You are also to be patient, bearing with one another in love. And so we are to be patient. Listen, when a new believer comes into a a fold of sheep, they don't know the things you know. Okay, They don't know that's the way we've always done it. 
They're new. And so you need to be patient with them and lovingly teach them instead of being rough with them. You need to be gentle. Okay? So this is how you go about acting like a real child of the king. You have patience. You're humble. You uh, bear with one another in love. Then he says in verse 3, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. So you, or we as a church, are to make every effort to keep unity. It is incredibly important for we, us as a church, and churches across the world to maintain unity. Listen to this. If we don't have unity, we then become two churches. It's possible to have two or three churches within one building. It really is. It's possible to have your joy club in one section. It's possible to have your youth in one section. And then all of us that don't really fit anywhere in another section. Okay? And it's possible to have three different churches under one house. And God says you need to do everything you can do to build unity. It's incredibly important. Because listen to this. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all. So how much sense does it make to have two churches when you have all of those ones? Everything is orderly. The church should be orderly also, and we should be in unity in the things that we do. Now, churches get disunity real quick when they take their eye off the prize. Christ is the goal. Christ is who we're supposed to be chasing after and following. When we as a body stop chasing after Christ, when we stop trying to bring unbelievers to Christ, and when we stop as a body trying to grow in Christ, that's when you get disunity. Because as long as we're all running the same direction, you may be turned around to grab somebody, but you're only turning around for a second to get back in line and run after Christ. See, there's a ton of different things that we can do differently and still have unity going the same direction. Because I told you, all of us are different. And that's going to come up later when we talk about gifts being given to different people. It's possible for a group of us to all be different, but be in unity. That's the beauty of the church. So he says this, this is in verse seven. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Remember it's grace. Grace is when you're given something that you don't deserve. So to each one of us, grace, something that we don't deserve has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and this comes out of the book of Psalms. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. So this is a really interesting verse that he chooses. But the imagery here is that a king has just gone out into battle. So the king has, has come down from his throne. He's, he's out with the people. He's gone into battle. He's conquered. Now he's bringing his conquered people back with him. And when you were a king and when you conquered other villages back in this day, you owned them. You didn't defeat somebody and then send a group of people back in to help rebuild the city's infrastructure. No, you just clean house and then you own everything that they have. And so you, you, you've, you've pillaged and you've taken all of your, all of the gold and such. And when the king comes back, he brings the captives with him. And then sometimes he distributes the gifts that they pillaged from the towns to the people. And so Christ is using the same imagery 
It says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens. So this Christ ascended on high, and the scripture says that in order for him to ascend, he had to descend first. And so it's not talking about Christ being in hell or anything like that. Christ descended to the lower portions of the earth right here. And then he ascended back up into the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so Christ descended. Then he ascended. You following me? And then he gave gifts to men. And he not only ascended, but he fills. Let me find it again so I read it right. It says in verse 10, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so Christ, fully God, descends to earth. Then he ascends, he dies on the cross, raises from the dead, and he ascends back to the Father. Not only to be in heaven, but to fill the heavens. So he fills the whole universe, Christ does. Get that? Christ, who gives you the power, fills the whole universe. I want you to see the magnitude of Christ here. And then he says that the same Christ who fills the universe, verse 11, it was he, it was Christ who fills the universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So me, your pastor, Christ gave that to me. The Christ who fills the heavens gave to me the grace to be a pastor. You realize how huge that is? Not just for you, but for me. You, you see, I should get, I should, that's why I sweat. I, I deserve it. Because the God who fills the universe, the Christ who fills everything, he gave grace to me to be a pastor. And so what I don't, I don't get nervous when we meet with our deacons. I get nervous when I think about dying and standing before God and having to answer for what I did with his people. That scares me to death. That I lose sleep over. I enjoy hanging out with our deacons. They're a good time. They really are. A lot better than most. Really. So, God, Christ, who fills the whole universe, gave me to be a pastor. Why did he give me to be a pastor? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so God gave me grace to be a pastor. Why? For you. God gives, gave me a gift to benefit you. See, it's my job to to be a pastor and, and operate within the grace that God's given me. But my purpose as a pastor is for you. And the purpose is to equip you to do good works. My job, listen to this. My job is not for this church to grow numerically. It's not for us to start broadcasting our services online on TV so that I can buy nicer suits and bigger cars. That's not my purpose. My purpose is for to equip 
you, brothers and sisters, to do good works. And if we do grow, when we grow, because whenever that happens, you naturally get growth. But the purpose is very small. The purpose is to prepare God's people. If you've been saved, if you've been washed in the blood, you're one of God's people. And it's my job given by God to prepare you for good works. All of you for good works. Then he says, so that the body of Christ may be built up. So we're going to do good works to build up the body of Christ. That's the church. Remember, the people are the church, not the building. We don't, we don't, I'm not equipping you for good works so that you can all join the building and grounds committee and we can build a new building. We don't care about that. I want to equip you for good works that build up the body of Christ, not the building of Christ. So, this is still verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. When? So when do we get to stop? When we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so get this, it's my job as your pastor, to present you to God fully mature and us as a body in unity. That's the job. If you wanted to boil down what we call my job description into to one or two things, it's to build unity, equip you for good works, and then to present you mature in Christ to God on the last day. A bit of a soapbox. That's why it's incredibly important For you to be here when we have services. I cannot do my job in presenting you mature in Christ if you don't come and eat spiritual food when we're giving it. That's why our Wednesday night service is good for you to come to. Our Sunday morning service is good for you to come to. Listen, it's not the same when you go to the river and you watch church on TV. It's not the same at all. Am I saying that God can't use it? Am I saying that that you're bad if you ever do it? No, if you go to the river, definitely get some sort of spiritual food. But you, as a member of this body of Christ, you need to be with the body when we sit down and eat supper. And that's now. And that's Wednesday nights. Okay? It's incredibly important. The book of Hebrews says, as we see the day approaching, we need to meet all the more together as a body. You cannot reproduce what happens with us as a body of Christ when when God's word is being presented. If you were to sit down, uh, I'll say a core group of about 20, 25 people. And the reason I say they're a core group for this particular thing is that uh, the group that's been coming faithfully on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights as a whole. If you were to give them an off-the-cuff poll of who's been growing spiritually as a result of making an effort to come to those two services, I guarantee you that most of them would stand up because we have been growing as a group spiritually. God's been doing some really neat things. And when they invite you, they're trying to bring you into it so that you can grow with us. This is incredibly practical. It's tough as a pastor. Now I'm going to vent just for a second. When you have a group of people and you're trying to bring the group of people to maturity in Christ... But some of them get off the bus on the way. So Sunday morning, we're going, right? We're, we're pre- I'm preaching on Sunday morning, trying to, to teach you and, and help the Holy Spirit talk through me and edify your lives. But then they don't come back any other time to be edified more. And so you have one group who's pushing ahead full steam, and you have another group who's kind of hanging back here. Mm, I can wait till next time. It's just tough. 
I'm not trying to fuss at you or anything. I'm just saying that it's tough to take a group of people to a certain destination when everybody's not on board together. Like, that's why in school you can only miss 20 days of school as an elementary school or high school student. Or you have to repeat the grade because they're trying to bring everybody along together. And if you miss too much, you're just not there. And, and one of the practical sides of being a pastor is it's your job as a pastor to, to cast vision for people. And if you only catch half the vision and another group catches the whole vision, that's when you get a little bit out of unity because everybody's not together. So it's tough. So I just want to encourage you to, to make an effort to come. Uh, I was talking with Boyd this week. I understand that on Wednesday when you want to come to church, everything at work goes wrong. I get that. I do. I promise you I do. And listen, I understand that sometimes you come to church and you sleep through church. I used to do it too when I worked in construction. To come Wednesday night and the preacher wants to talk for an hour, man, I'm done after about 45 minutes. And so I'll, I'll hang on as long as I can, but I get it. That's why I don't get mad at you guys if you fall asleep. I realize you've worked hard all week. It's hot in here and it's slightly comfortable where you're sitting. I get that. So, but it's my job nonetheless. To present you mature in Christ. And so I don't ever want to plan any time for you to come to this church building and waste your time. I want to give you good spiritual food that can help you grow and be a contributing member to God's family. So Wednesday nights, I don't view them as a waste of time at all. Listen, just forgive me if you're in the joy club. Sometimes people think prayer meeting. That's just when the old people get together and pray. That's the thought. I promise you, that's the thought. That is not true, okay? We do pray some. We start out, this is what a Wednesday night looks like. We pray for the whole prayer list. One person prays for the prayer list. It lasts about a minute. And then I preach for a little while. Or t- It's more teaching on Wednesday nights. And then we take whatever time we have left and we pray for our lost friends and family. Because remember, the goal is Christ. So I hate that you have an ingrown toenail, but Christ is the goal, not just your health. Okay? We want to chase Christ because we want people not to spend an eternity in hell. We want them to grow. And so we don't just pray for sick people during the prayer meeting. We're mainly praying for our lost friends and family because we want to snatch them and keep them from dying without Christ. That's our goal. So that's what we do. So it's about a minute of prayer in the beginning. We do share some prayer requests. Then we jump into a teaching time. Then we finish praying for our lost friends and family. And that's one of the ways that we use to present you mature in Christ. Because it's good that you come and you learn to pray with other believers. It's good that you come and you learn more of God's word. Now, so, the bad news is, is that we have to do this. It's not really bad. Verse 13 Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so you do this until you become mature. We talked this Wednesday night. If you missed it, see, now I'm having to go back and review. If you missed it, we talked about that it's not God's will just for you to be made alive in Christ and then step over into being saved. It's God's will for your life for you to continue down this scale and for you to be completely mature in Christ. 
The example, we do laugh a lot on Wednesday nights too. I gave the example, when a young couple gets married, nobody expects them to stay young and married forever. Young married couples do certain things that have certain implications. Now there's more people in their family than there was before. And so it's that young couple's job to then raise their children and then their children raise their children. And so you see, as you go down this line of maturity in Christ, you're spiritually reproducing yourself. Are you the type of Christian who has reproduced spiritually? I mean, I get an A plus for growing a family. But spiritually speaking, have I raised other people to take my place if I were gone tomorrow? And for many of us, that's where we lack. We lack growing to be mature Christians who disciple young believers who lead other people to Christ and then grow them up to be mature believers. You see, you've only arrived in the Christian faith if you're actively reproducing yourself spiritually. That's the goal. Not just for people to be saved, but for people to be saved, mature, and then help other people become mature. So that, we're at the end of 13, until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, how mature do we need to get? This is something that I read this on that mission trip that I took the students with on the church that I came from because this, this just, I spent every day in this verse in my devotion. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. How mature do you need to get spiritually speaking? You need to be just like Christ. That's how spiritually mature you need to be. If I said, how many of you guys are just like Christ? If you stood up, I'd say you're a liar. No. If you stood up and you were genuinely just like Christ, I would say, okay, then you're excused from ever coming here again because you've arrived. But if, if you were just like Christ, you would come anyways because you want to grow others so that they can be fully mature and they can be just like Christ also. And so the goal isn't that, like I said, the goal isn't that you're lost and now you're saved. The goal is that you're saved and you are just like Christ. When you hit your hand with a hammer, you're just like Christ. When your kids scratch your car, you're just like Christ. When your kids wreck your car, you're just like Christ. When your kids using a lawnmower and he shoots rocks into your windows because he doesn't know any better, you're just like Christ. Everything that comes your way, you act and you breathe and you smell just like Christ. Following me? That's the goal for us as a church. And when we as a church are just like Christ, we have unity and we grow and we care about the same things. We have patience and we have all of the other things that we're supposed to have. And that's the goal. And so why do you go through all of that work to be just like Christ? The answer is because of the great hope that you have in him and how much he loves you. That's why you do it. I got to cruise now. Then it says in verse 14, just so you know, we're stopping at the end of 16. I don't want you all setting your watch alarms to go off, so I stop now. That's what I'm telling you. Then, this is verse 14. Then, when we 
attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. And so the reason that you grow and grow and grow in Christ is so that you're not a baby caught in a hurricane blowing all over the place. The reason that you become like Christ is so every time a new book comes out, it doesn't rock your world because you're like, oh, I was praying wrong all along. I'm not using the Holy Spirit right. I'm not doing all these other things right. That's why you grow in Christ. It's so that you're not blown all around. The church is safe when people are growing together. If the church was growing together, more pastors would get fired. Do you know a good reason to fire your pastor? If his primary job is to build unity and to present you mature in Christ, the number one reason to fire your pastor is that you come to church and he's not feeding you spiritually. Have you ever seen a pastor fired, Dr. Tarkington, because he didn't feed his sheep? I've never seen it. I would love to see a body of Christ raise up and they say, Pastor, we love you, but you're not giving us what we need to grow. Boy, that, I got chills just thinking about that. I would love for some of you guys to drop into my office and say, Pastor, we need more. We need more than you're giving us right now. That would be awesome. That would be like the greatest thing that could ever happen. That would be my best week is if all of you came by and did that. But you meant it. Okay? And then I didn't hear rumors about you at the country club. And I didn't hear rumors about you at the Heritage House and all this other stuff. But if those of you were truly living righteous came to me and said, Pastor, we got to have more because we want to grow spiritually. That would be great. And instead, we fire pastors for all these other stupid reasons. Here we go. Instead, this is verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. We will in all things grow up to him who is the head, that is Christ. And so instead of all of that other stuff, we speak the truth in love and we grow. If you don't have a brother or sister in Christ that will speak the truth in love to you, you cannot grow spiritually. If you're a man and you don't have another man in your life who has... I wish we were on a men's retreat because I could say he doesn't have something, but I'm not going to say it here in front of the group. He doesn't have the intestinal fortitude to look at you in the face and say, brother, you're messing up. Then he's not a real friend and he doesn't love you. If you're going to be mature in Christ, you've got to come along somebody who loves you enough to say, brother, I'm going to speak the truth and love to you. You're not going to like this, but what you're doing is sin and you've got to cut it out if you want to be fully mature in Christ. If you're a man here and you want somebody in your life to spend time with you, you want somebody to speak truth into your life, not be a hypocrite, you come talk to me and we will get into a a discipleship relationship and I'll go to lunch with you and we'll hang out and we'll talk. And I'm not judgmental, but I will love you like Christ loves you. And I'm not afraid to say, hey, brother, maybe that's a bad idea. But you got to pursue that, not me. I can't push that on you. You got to want that. Ladies, there's older ladies in this church that are incredibly godly. And you know who they are. You seek them out and ask them to spend time with you and teach you things and they'll do it. So speak the truth in love. I'm going to spend more time talking about that uh, in the next few, few verses. It's going to come up later. Then he says, this is verse 15. I'll read through the end. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body, the whole church is joined and held together by every supporting ligament 
grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The book of Romans says that we are all different parts of the same body. Corinthians is going to say this also. We're different parts of the same body. Some of your fingers, some of your toes, some of your butts. We're all different things. We're all part of the same body. We all have a purpose. Now, I said some of your butts just to joke around because you're falling asleep. But listen, if somebody walked in here without a butt, you would say something's wrong with that guy. uh, And you wouldn't have anywhere to sit. So listen, every part of the body is incredibly important. And Corinthians goes on to say those parts that are the most private, that are the most intimate, we take more care to take care of those parts. And so we're all different. I was watching Duck Dynasty with my kids, and he said, Willie said that the Robertson family is like Miss Kay's gumbo. Separate, they're, all the parts are weird, and they don't taste right. But when they come together into one masterpiece, everything fits together perfect, and it tastes great. The church is the same way. Separate from each other, we're all different. We're not all good. If there was a million of me in the world, that would be a bad thing. We need you. We need balance. But Christ is the ligament that holds us all together. And we grow in unity. And so while you're busy being a hand or a foot, and I'm busy being something else, you give me whatever title you want, we are held together with ligaments, and Christ is those ligaments, and we all grow in unity, and we're all different, but we're part of the same body. And as long as all of us are growing and maturing in Christ... This whole thing called the church is incredibly beautiful because we can reach the world with all of us different people and it's glorious. So as we, as we wind down and just so you know, the sermon got cut in half today. I'm sorry. Uh, but I'm, I'm watching out for your time. So don't talk bad about me. As we come into the time of invitation, we're going to sing that same song we sung before. You think about what we just talked about. You think about all the great things in this song. And then use the fuel from that song and that worship to do the things that Paul wants you to do. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to go back and I'm going to stand next to my wife while we sing the song and I'm going to worship with you. If you want to talk to me, you come get me. We'll talk. I'm going to sing this song. If you need anything from me, you come talk to me. Okay. And then at the end of the song, uh, brother Tarkington, if you'll close in prayer and I'll meet you at the back door on the way out. Sound good? Don't forget about um, about the deacons meeting change, and don't forget about the other announcements that are in the bulletin. Okay, so here we go. Let me pray for us, and then Bethy will lead us. You guys, come on, and I'll pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that uh, awesome song that we sang this morning. God, I pray that as we have heard your word preached and we have sung your praises, Lord, I pray that we have grown closer to you. God, I pray that uh, right now that we would be able to. Uh, to let our guards down and to get away from the stuffiness of church sometimes. And Lord, I pray that we would worship over the next three or four minutes in spirit and in truth. And God, I pray that you would accept it uh, and that it would be pleasing in your sight. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.